Continuing education credits for physicians and other healthcare professionals is provided by VCU Healthcare Continuing Education. Check out cribsiders.vcuhealth.org for more information. The Cribsiders podcast is for entertainment, education, and informational purposes only. The views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of the host. Welcome back to the Cribsiders. Woohoo! Woohoo! I'm Justin Burt tonight, joined by producer Sydney Engel. Say hi, Sydney. Hello. It's just us tonight. I know. Yeah, we had a, we had a great time. It was a lot of fun. We had a great conversation. Our guest tonight, Dr. Rohit Kohli, to discuss non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, or as he calls it in children, fatty liver disease. Before we get into that, Sydney, can you remind us about what we do on this show? Absolutely. We are the Pediatric Medicine Podcast. We interview leading experts in the field to bring clinical pearls, practice changing knowledge, and answer lingering questions about core topics in pediatric medicine. We have a fantastic conversation with our guest, Dr. Kohli. Dr. Kohli received his medical degree from the Armed Forces Medical College in India and his MS in Clinical Investigation from Northwestern University. He trained as a pediatric gastroenterologist and hepatology fellow, and his research is focused on the pathogenesis of obesity-related fatty liver disease. He's published many peer-reviewed articles, including articles in Nature, Hepatology, and the Journal of Pediatrics. He's also the Associate Director at the Sabin Research Institute at CHLA. Dr. Coley teaches us the fatty liver screening criteria that we can use to identify fatty liver, when and why to do a liver biopsy, and how to pronounce NASPOGEN, the GI national organization that I've always struggled with until now. Naspogen, Naspogen, Naspogen. So without further ado, let's get to it. Hey, Cindy, you know, despite Chris not being on air, we really delivered a good episode. Oh, man, I see what you did there. Delivered. Nah. Dr. Rohit Kohli, we are so excited to have you on the show. Welcome to the Cribsiders. Thank you so much for having me. This is amazing. We're very happy to have you and and learn from you. We're an informal group. And so I'd like to ask, is it okay if we call you by your first name, Rohit, through the episode? So long as you don't ask me what my nickname is, I'm good. Oh, interesting. Oh, no. Uh, no, I'm so torn. (laughs) (laughs) We'll be respectful. Maybe at the end of the episode, we'll see if it it comes back up. Uh, This is... Uh, what a tense start. No, uh, we would love to, to know you better, even if not through your nickname. Uh, and so would love if you could give us kind of a one-liner to describe yourself and kind of let our listeners know a little bit about you and maybe something you like outside of medicine. Yeah. So a one-liner is always tough for someone who's my age, but I'll try. I think the most important thing for me is to continuously learn. So I'd like to say that I'm a PGY, whatever, 40. <laughs> and uh want to continue on this journey because that's what medicine's about, right? We are always trying to better ourselves because we're not taking care of cars manufactured in the same unit the same way. Mm. And there's no blueprint when we're born with us. So that's the fun part of medicine. And I feel like because of that, a lot of us in medicine do a disservice to ourselves by not having a lot of hobbies. And I fall into that category. Mm. So my hobby is medicine. I love that. We've had some other guests say that too. And I'll be honest, I also share the lack of hobbies. And I'm always very self-conscious when someone asks. And back when I was on the dating apps, that was always the first question that came up. And I would always just bomb early on. And so um, (laughs) I've started to to pick up some other things. But I I also, if you really love medicine, sometimes that's allowed to be your hobby. And so I I, I hear you. Sydney, do you want to do a get to know your question? 
So I am now currently about seven minutes away from my current audiobook. So I'm wondering, uh, Rohit, do you have any book recommendations you can provide something that every physician, every provider, or even just every person should read? Um, the book that is kind of stuck with me for quite a while now, it's not something that's, I would say, very recent, but is When Breath Becomes Air. Hmm. I think that just uh, hit me at the right time during my career trajectory to realign kind of even keel what we all typically refer to as work-life balance. And I'm not sure that that may be the right term to use, work and life and balance or so forth, but just to realign, reassess how much emphasis, time, energy we spend. Maybe that's the right word, how, how we balance the energy between work and life. And so take care of ourselves, take care of our families. And yes, of course, we have passion, we have commitment towards our calling, but there's a limit. So it's kind of contradictory to what we just talked about, Justin and I, about not having hobbies. But I think that's that puts it in perspective. We start when we're in medical school, just before, whenever the light bulb goes off that we want to be in medicine with that passion. But at some point, one has to realize that there is another aspect to us which needs attention. I, I love that. And I, I like to reconcile that you can still find joy in life in those things without taking up gardening or woodworking or one of these more common hobbies. But I think that that's great advice. And that is a very meaningful and, and touching book. And I completely agree. And, you know, kind of learning from others, I would love to hear if you have any best advice that you've ever, you know, received as a, as a learner, as a teacher, as you know, some other time in your career, if there's a good piece of advice that's really stuck with you that you think listeners would appreciate? I think uh, for me, the number one best piece of advice I ever got was from one of the leader's fathers, if he doesn't mind me calling him that in our field, pediatric hepatology specifically, not just GI, because I'm more of a hepatocyte than I'm an enterocyte. Hmm. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, from Dr. Balistrieri, who wrote one of the first textbooks in pediatric liver disease. So I can use his, his advice for, for broader understanding as well. He's also, I think, the editor-in-chief for Journal of Pediatrics. So long story short, the advice he gave me once, and he gives, gives this liberally to all of his mentees, is to start with the end in mind. It's very short. It's very concise, but it works every damn time. Sorry. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> it's, it, it, it just does. I think if you are goal-oriented, which a lot of us are, we're type A's, that's why we're here in this, in this field, and we know where we want to get to, it makes it so much easier to take away the riffraff and concentrate and be kind of have a beeline towards your goal. Love that. I mean, that's true. For a second, I thought you were going to say, he was just going to say, like, don't drink, um, which would be a very uh, we'll funny lead-up, but that was much more, that was that. Much more um, <laughs> inspirational. So I think that was great. All right. This has been wonderful. And I would love to dive into some content. But before we do that, let's hear from one of the sponsors that helps support the show. This episode is brought to you by Uncommon Goods. Hey, if you haven't finished your holiday shopping yet, don't panic. We've got a secret source for incredible original gifts. That's Uncommon Goods. UncommonGoods.com has the absolute best gifts for everyone in your life. We're talking moms. We're talking dads. Teens, in-laws, besties, your secret crush in the radiology department, they have a gift for everyone. And it's not stuff you can find just anywhere. Uncommon Goods has unique and creative gifts. Skip the last-minute gifts and find something truly original at UncommonGoods.com. Some of my favorite things from the site, a portable campfire, a Bluetooth banana phone, a Mars Zen garden, and some hot Cocoa Bomb toolkits. 
Uncommon Goods looks for products that are high quality, unique, and made in the United States. They have the most meaningful out of ordinary gifts anywhere. From art to jewelry to kitchen, home, and bar, Uncommon Goods has something for everyone. And with every purchase you made at Uncommon Goods, they give back $1 to a nonprofit partner of your choice. They've donated more than $2.5 million to date. So to get 15% off your next gift, go to uncommongoods.com slash cribsiders. That's uncommongoods.com slash cribsiders for 15% off. Don't miss out on this limited time offer. Uncommon Goods, they're out of the ordinary. Sydney, why don't you uh, take it away? Okay. All right. So we are starting off with a case from Caslec Children's Outpatient Clinic. So you are seeing Oliver Nash, an 11-year-old boy with no significant medical history for the first time at Caslec Children's Primary Care for a well-child check. While reviewing growth charts, you notice percentiles of 32nd percentile for height, 97 percentile for weight, and 98 percentile for BMI. His ROS and physical exam are unremarkable and appropriate for his age. Blood pressure is 100 over 64. When asked about questions, his caregiver notes that the patient's father was just diagnosed with fatty liver disease, and they recently read online that this can also happen in children. They want to know if any testing needs to be done for Oliver. So stepping back for a moment, can you tell us a little bit about what exactly non-alcoholic fatty liver disease is, maybe a brief overview of the pathophysiology, particularly as it pertains to children? No, happy to. First of all, I hate the name. The nosology is very inappropriate for children, for pediatrics. Most children who are, I believe you mentioned he was 11 years old in your example, won't drink alcohol specifically. <laughs> and we have a very robust ongoing debate. In fact, a month ago, there was a consensus conference in Chicago International between EASL, which is the European Association for Study of Liver Disease, and AASLD, which is the American version of the same, and representatives from Asia, the Far East, Australia, basically a global powwow on how to call this entity that we currently name NAFLD. No decisions have been made. (laughs) However, one thing that stands out is that alcoholic, the word within the title currently as it stands, is stigmatizing. Fatty, the third alphabet, is also stigmatizing. So in 2022, we hope we can continue to work towards a better version of this nomenclature. Not there yet, working on it. There were 50 different versions that came out of it, so I won't mm-hmm. get into them. Uh, my favorite one was shot down on the very first day. It was a two-day conference called Nutrition Associated Fatty Liver Disease. It still had fatty in it. Suffice it to say, when you have more than 5% of your hepatocytes filled with liver, sorry, filled with fat, it's above normal. And that's when we say there is excess fat in the liver. And so if there is concomitant inflammation and or fibrosis downstream of having that excess fat in the liver, you're going to get into steatohepatitis or inflammation, hepatitis. And NASH can transform itself under the right conditions. You ask specifically in children, we talk about family history, we talk about ethnicity, people of Hispanic heritage, of Asian heritage are more predisposed, potentially due to genetic variations small nucleotide polymorphisms in a gene called PNPLA3, which codes for the adiponeutrin gene. Uh, It's a lipid transport mechanism. Uh, You end up with more inflammation, more fibrosis if you have the wrong SNPs in that gene. That is very important for children because, of course, if you expose yourself to, best example is, of course, alcoholic liver disease, 
most people have associate that with chronic alcohol usage. However, there are people who may have genetic predispositions and even a little bit of exposure causes them to have faster progression of the same. And we can have a myriad of examples, but that's where I would bring in NAFLD, going into NASH, and sometimes even into advanced fibrosis cirrhosis at young ages, there's probably an underlying cause which can be thought of to be a exacerbation of sorts of the same environmental trigger. And so this genetic component, is that something that I presume is inherited? And so is this something that often runs in families or not necessarily? It probably does. We don't have a lot of strong data. Uh, What we do know is that it is predominant in certain ethnicities. So uh, there are genotypes of the PNPLA3 gene which are more prevalent in the Hispanic population versus there are some protective genotypes in, say, the uh, African-American population. So uh, there is definitely an ethnic preponderance of one genotype versus the other, which lead to increased risk of more severe fibrosis in one versus the other. However, there's another aspect to this. I, I typically call this the nature versus nurture situation, right? Where you have what you're born with, like you were talking about, what are the genotypes you have versus the vast milieu of cheap, high calorie, dense foods that are available to us in our first world environment, especially processed and, and refined sugar enriched foods. Mixing those two things is kind of a bad cocktail. There are indigenous peoples who may have the same genetic polymorphisms that are inherently, quote unquote, bad, but their food habits are probably more non-processed, non-refined sugar, and therefore they're still protected against the side effects that we're facing as a growing tsunami of, of this disease hits our populations, in pediatric populations specifically. So recognizing the contributing factors of both genetics as well as environmental exposures. Can you talk a little bit more about how NAFLD is related to body fat percentage or BMI? We just released an episode on health at every size. And I'm, I'm curious, is, is it a correlation? Is there a causational element? Um, would love to hear more about that. There definitely is correlation, right? There's no two ways about it. If we did not have an obesity epidemic, we probably would not have picked up on the numbers we have right now of fatty liver disease. So there was a very nice article that came out in pediatrics uh, a couple of years ago now from Southern California. The Kaiser Permanente database was used and uh, the lead author, the senior author, I should say, was from UCSD, Jeff Schwimmer. Um, What they did with Kaiser has a captured population, right? They have members and they take care of their, it's kind of a closed system. So they were able to monitor that population over a 10-year period to see what the prevalence was of NAFLD in their captive population. And they almost saw a doubling, right? It's the same geography, same location, same, some people even made the same genetic composition of the population at large, ethnic diversity remaining what it was over a 10-year period, maybe slight changes, but what changed was environment and, and how, how much more easy access we have to cheap, energy-dense, refined sugar-infused foods and drinks. And so knowing elevated BMI can serve as a, a proxy or you know a correlate to this, are there other history or exam findings that would make you concerned and want to screen for a patient for NAFLD? Or, or what is the criteria for screening a patient where we should be looking for this in a patient in a primary care office, for example? 
No, this is a very good question. I think screening is critical. So how um, we as a group uh, back in 2017 from the Pediatric GI Society, the formal acronym is NASPGAN, the North American Society for Pediatric GI, Hepatology and Nutrition, short for NASPGAN. Uh, we put our heads together and we tried to understand what best time frame we could present to primary care providers to align other investigations, screening investigations that are happening. So what we found was that there are hyperlipidemia screenings happening at the health, uh, sorry, the well child visit around nine years of age, eight to 10, I believe is the recommendation from AAP. And so we said we wanted to piggyback on that because that's when we start to see more presentation to our clinics in our GI clinics of patients with suspected fatty liver disease. So at that time, we recommended, uh, this came out in 2017, that we would check a alanine aminotransferase, an ALT level, if a child has a BMI greater than 85th percentile for age and sex. Why did we choose that? Because, of course, that aligns with overweight and obesity classifications. And as you just asked, those things correlate BMI being above 85th percentile, correlate with increased incidence of fatty liver disease. So we put together a elevated ALT, the group that we had, the guidelines we came out with, focused in on greater than or equal to 80, 80 IU per liter in combination with an elevated body mass index above the 85th percentile, as I just mentioned. At that point, you would then refer over, if this was a chronic situation, two checks more than three months apart, standard definition of chronicity, we would refer over to a specialist, a gastroenterologist. Beautiful. So first, um, Naspertian, Naspertian. I think I'm getting, I'm going to have that by the end of this episode. <laughs> Second, as a primary care physician, appreciate you uh, coordinating the recommended lab draws with others in the well child visits. And third, just so that I can, you know, do some teach back to make sure a complete understanding is really if a patient has a BMI greater than the 85th percentile, we would be adding a lab check, specifically an ALT to serve as a screening. If it's over 80, that's when we are, spidey senses are up and then have to demonstrate chronicity. So doing a repeat test three months later. Is that right? I would say that's an accurate teach back, <laughs> but Excellent. I'm going to go off the, I, but I am going to, Justin, I'm going to go off the reservation now. So that okay. was, <laughs> that was the guidelines, but you know, when you have guidelines, it's Sasha's making, right? You, you have 15 different people, different opinions. So I'm going to also, if you're okay with it, share my own opinion. I'm ready. Please. <laughs> so 80 was a, uh, was a compromised number. And the reason why it was compromised is it's like any ROC curve, receiver operating curve, right? You're going to increase it to 120 as the cutoff. You're going to capture a much higher specificity, but you lose sensitivity and so on and so forth. You, we know basic stats, all of us. So when you look at what is normative for a lean child at that age, for a upper limit of normal ALT, it's actually 22 and 24 for males and females. So if it's 22 and 24, 80 seems to be way far away. For me, anything that's twice the upper limit of normal, so maybe 45, just to even Stevens it out, right? keep it easy. And that's what we use at Children's Los Angeles. And that's what we use when I was at Cincinnati Children's in our fatty liver clinic as well. That 45 and above is when our spidey senses tingle. I love the Spider-Man reference. I'm a big fan. <laughs> and so is my son. However, 
chronicity still remains to be checked. You know, just 145 reading doesn't make you a NAFOLD diagnosis. You need to have chronic liver disease. You're not talking about, I had a cold, I had a rhinovirus infection, and therefore my ALT is a little bit up once. So establish chronicity, but keep in mind that 80 was still, because we're talking about a fifth of our general pediatric population. So I get it. I feel that there has to be more ownership on the preventive side, and that lives fairly and squarely within children's primary care providers, maybe even with individuals who are running obesity clinics. To go to a gastroenterologist, to a fatty liver clinic, I understand. Maybe we're looking for a little bit higher threshold, but I had a hard time with that. I, I think it makes great sense to kind of showcase the spectrum because I do think with these guidelines, they're incredibly helpful. But sometimes working in a residency clinic, you know, we did an ALT of 79, for example, and it's like, <laughs> well, that, you know, that's no, it doesn't mean criteria. So I guess not. And it is tough to explain that, you know, even to myself and especially students. And so this is a, this is a very helpful uh, clarification, which I think is wonderful. Yeah. And, and I don't want to belabor the point, but I will belabor the point. I think uh, there are eight chances of us out of 10 picking up our lab results from our individual institutions and finding that the ALT range that is printed on there, the normative range, is going to be way off the charts from 45. It's probably going to be 60s or 70s. And, 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 and that sometimes is hard because you're just looking at, okay, is it all red or is it all green or is it all black and moving on? So please remember, if there's nothing else from this podcast, because chronic liver disease, whether it's from fatty liver or something else, is still chronic liver disease, normals are 22 and 24. Excellent. Um, okay. And then what about if your patient has this elevated risk with the BMI greater than 85th percentile um, and they remain at that and they have normal testing initially, do you end up repeating it? And if so, at what interval? Typically, we've been asking for, and the guidelines also agree to mention the interval of every three months. And why we do that is for two different reasons. One, we want to follow progression of disease. But the other is also we were hoping to have influenced the child and the family to start to work on diet and lifestyle. And therefore, this becomes potentially a carrot where you are showcasing to them the improvement in lab tests because it's a very quiet, silent disease. It's not like their tummy pain is going to get better or their acne is disappearing. So there's no positive reinforcement. So we have to come up with stuff. And one of the things is that we check their labs and we showcase to them and there's others over the years we've developed. But this is a primary way to give them positive reinforcement when they do put in the effort uh, to try to at least maintain, if not lose weight while they're gaining height. This episode is brought to you by Pattern Life. Shopping for disability insurance can be complicated and time-consuming. You're a busy doctor. You shouldn't have to worry about whether or not you're getting the best rate, looking for all the available discounts. Trying to research all options and make the right decision while in training especially can make the process even more overwhelming. Residents shouldn't have to do this. Pattern believes doctors have more important things to do than spend hours sorting through these options. This is why thousands of doctors trust Pattern to help them compare and understand disability insurance the way they are buying it. They do this in three steps. One, request your quotes online for you. Two, compare all your options and ask questions. And three, secure your policy. Be confident you have the right policy so that your income is protected. You have invested a lot in the assets that is your brain. With huge discounts for doctors and training and decreased requirements on labs and physicals, now's the best time to request your disability insurance quote with Pattern. You can go to patternlife.com slash cribsiders 
That's patternlife.com slash curbsiders to get your quote. So let's um let's do a little little follow up and Sydney, how uh how's Oliver doing a few days after his clinic appointment? <laughs> All right. Um yeah, so part two of our case. So having listened to this excellent episode from the Cribsiders, you go ahead and order lab testing for Oliver. His ALT is 113 and AST is 107. Total cholesterol is 107, HDL is 40, LDL is 53. Repeat testing three months later shows ALT of 120. So what is your initial impression of these lab results? I know you kind of touched on that before, um, but curious to hear if you have any additional thoughts now that we have some labs in front of us. Well, clearly there has not been much movement in the liver enzymes. And that tells me one of two things. Either there has not been a substantial amount of weight loss and therefore corollary decrease in fat content within the liver to improve liver enzymes. Or, and this does happen, and actually is the more kind of scary scenario in one, one shape or form, is that there has been weight loss. And despite diet lifestyle changes and weight loss, there is still elevated liver enzymes. Now, first scenario is probably fatty liver disease. And nine times out of 10, that's what we find. However, the one in 10 scenario where a child, adolescent, young adult loses weight, does good at what they're doing, and continues to have elevated liver enzymes opens up the Pandora's box of what we call the secondary workup, where we cannot and should not discriminate against a third of our population or a fourth of our population, whatever we want to, prevalence data you want to use, a fifth of our population, you want to be conservative, that have excess fat in their liver because they're overweight or obese, but may have something else underlying. They could have alpha-1 antitrypsin deficiency. They could have autoimmune hepatitis. They could have hypothyroidism. They could have celiac disease. And all these things would be ignored if all we said was the correlation between excess BMI and liver injury is so tight that we don't need to look for anything else. So I think those two scenarios are key. And therefore, I continue to advocate, and there is literature that I can share with you where we have looked at large cohorts, we as in the larger we, the scientific we, looked at large cohorts of children who come in into this paradigm and come out with specific secondary diagnoses, which would continue to obviate us to do the due diligence that I'm suggesting. Our contrarian publications were given the number of these secondary diagnoses picked up being small. It's always going to be small. So nine times out of 10, 9.5 times out of 10, you're going to be fatty liver disease. Should we not do this large workup? And my pushback is I don't want to discriminate. There's a large element of equity involved here. There are social determinants of health that unfortunately push a lot of these individuals into poor diets, quote unquote, poor diets. And therefore, it is my obligation as a clinician to use the advantage of when they do come to my clinic to make sure they don't have anything else that I can treat. I love envisioning this two contrarian groups of like the jets and the sharks at the Naspogen National Conference of... Uh, <laughs> It's it's definitely a fun group. Don't get us wrong, and and um, <laughs> no, I'm, I think, I'm sure you, yeah, you guys are great. <laughs> <laughs> the passion flows both ways. How about that? <laughs> excellent. It's excellent. Okay, so saying that we don't want to discriminate, right? Saying we're gonna we're gonna take your school of thought and then NASP began contrarian views. Um, what 
additional testing would you recommend be ordered for patients with these elevated liver enzymes initially? And at what point do you wait until they've had multiple repeated ones that are not falling? Yeah, can you kind of talk us through the, the secondary work up here? Uh, I've just clarify, NASB and guidelines and I am saying the same thing. There are some individuals within our community that disagree with us or data that is out there that talks about sm- being the percentage being so small of finding secondary diagnoses. Besides that, what we are going to test for is going to be excluding your standard hepatitis infections. So hep A, B, C, excluding, I mentioned uh, endocrine disorders such as hypothyroidism, uh, we're going to talk about autoimmune hepatitis, so we test for total IgG levels and anti-smooth muscle antibody, anti-liver kidney microsomal antibody, anti-nuclear antibody, ANA. We also look for Wilson's disease, so cerebroplasmin. We look for alpha-1 antitrypsin deficiency, lysosomal acid lipase deficiency. And that's, I, I would say, pretty much rounds out the top 10, so to call, of of uh, non-fatty liver diagnoses that you would rule out. And you could do all of these with the same blood draw, right? So that's how we come up to it. And are you assessing for liver function? Like, would you get an INR? Would you check platelets? Or are these things that are so far down the road that aren't really part of the initial workup? I would say that the latter is probably truer. You could check it once. A GGT has been shown. There's published data in combination with the ALT being an even better screening. So GGT sometimes is included. Function, INR, 99.9% is going to be stable at the early stages of disease. We don't really, unless you're talking about a deficiency of vitamin K, for instance, which is easily correctable. These are children with malnutrition. They may may not be your typical thought that comes to mind when you think about malnutrition as a undernourished child, but they're overnourished in some forms, but they're also malnourished in other definitions, if you want to use it broadly. So they can have uh, hypovitaminosis K, and therefore INR can be prolonged. But from the liver disease itself, uh, unless there is a secondary cause, which we just listed, you're not going to have that scenario typically. And just jumping on this lab draw conversation, um, is there any reason to order an AST or are we solely basing things on ALT in these kids, both for screening and follow-up purposes? Most of the algorithms have been focused on ALT. And the reason being you can use AST. The correlations are very similar. The reasoning being AST can be changed uh, by non-liver entities. So cardiac muscle, skeletal muscle, obviously RBC lysis, all of these can release AST. ALT is more uh, specific to the liver. Not 100%. ALT comes from muscle as well, but it's just the ratio is different. So we've tended to, it's also easier to remember L for liver. Um, uh, So we have tended Mm -hmm. to focus on ALT. I don't know about others, but for me, it is. And so now let's, you know, say for this patient where we have an elevated ALT, we have demonstrated chronicity And let's even say that we did the full workup to check for secondary causes just to make sure we're not missing anything and everything else seems to look okay. What's our next step? Are we doing something for imaging? Is that part of the process? Are we doing some other fibrosis calculation or like FIB4 or fibro scan or scanning? What's our next step in kind of understanding and characterizing this patient's um, pathology? Well, I think the first step, I think we should take a step back. The first step we would have talked about was diet and lifestyle. Even at the first visit when we had been receiving the child in intake, we're going to talk about 
eliminating sugar-sweetened beverages, right? That's the most EBM-based advice we can give, because all of us know as, as individuals interested in pediatrics, how much sugar is crushed into each SSB, right? So no SSBs, that has to be the number one thing. And then, of course, uh, we talk about at the second visit, if they're still struggling, we double down on that, but hopefully they've listened and they've started to cut juices and, and sodas and sports drinks uh, are being cut out. However, the next step becomes, this is how we do it in our clinic, next step becomes to focus on the composition of the plate. So more protein, less carbs. Eat what you like to eat, just make sure the ratios are different or better. And then if they still come back to us a third time and they continue to lose weight, then we're going to talk about portion control. And by the fourth time, they've either been successful or they've stopped coming back. <laughs> I don't know. But to your point, if we have gone through the diet discussions and we have encouraged them to exercise and they continue to gain weight or lose weight, but not a lot, and their enzymes are elevated, as you mentioned, and their secondary workup is negative, as you mentioned, the next step for us would be imaging. We don't think of ultrasound, standard abdominal ultrasound, to be of great utility in diagnosing NAFLD or NASH. However, one can use that for eliminating a large mass in the liver or a non-liver pathology that is around the liver that's impacting it, right? Pancreatic pseudocyst or something like that. What is important is now these growing number of modalities that are going to tell us the stiffness of the liver. Now, we have to be careful because the liver stiffness can come from many different things. It can come from inflammation, it can come from fibrosis, and can also come from passive congestion, say from a failed Fontan back pressure, right side of heart failure. So all of these three things can also come from increased iron deposition in a child with sickle cell disease. So there's many ways that their liver can be stiffer. So when we do get a number from either ultrasound-based, what we call a VCTE, one of which is FibroScan, as you mentioned, or magnetic resonance, MRI-based technologies such as MRI elastography. All of these are going to give us a stiffness value, which is a, they're working on deciphering the components. But for now, what's clinically available, uh, even though non-FDA approved, uh, some of them, is going to be a conglomeration of all of these different things that can give the liver increased stiffness. So that's where we go next. We use the ultrasound-based technologies first. If we have uh, a BMI that is plausible. If you have too much central obesity, if there's too much subcutaneous fat between the liver and the skin, the ultrasound-based technologies don't work. And then you have to go to the MRI-based technologies, which are more sensitive and uh, more, more specific as it is, but of course are more costly and take time. And also you have to be in a scanner and some children may find that claustrophobic and so forth. And is that imaging essentially measuring severity of disease? Is that what that fi fibrosis score suggests is how severe the disease is? Or, or how, I just, how does an expert let you interpret someone that has, quote, a bad score on MRE versus a lower score, better score? Yeah. So again, it will tell us the stiffness of the liver. So it can't, you can't specifically say this is from uh, just fibrosis, just inflammation. Sure. It'll be a combination of the above. Uh, but yes, uh, it will definitely, adult data is strong that you can differentiate F1, F0 against F3, F4. F2 becomes a little bit challenging. It's kind of in the middle. 
pediatric data, what has been published, and we've been part of some of these works, is smaller cohorts, but does show that you can differentiate, say, at a KPA kilopascal stiffness level of 2.7 and above, that there is significant or F2 and above fibrosis. So we're using these tools right now in clinic. We are using them for definitely for research to understand correlations between liver biopsy. We'll get to that hopefully in a second, the utility of that to imaging modalities. And there's more data, robust data around MRI and this less robust data on our fibroscan, just because the body habitus precludes once you get to too severe of a BMI level. And just to clarify really quickly on something that you said previously about, I love that you started first with, hey, start talking to them about diet right away. Don't wait until you have a definitive diagnosis. But as someone coming from a resource-limited clinic and a resource-limited area, if someone's trending down, does it then become less of a priority or even not at all a priority to image them? Trending down in weight? Sorry, or liver uh, both, ideally. But let's let's say both. Yeah. So my thought process has evolved over the years. When I started our first attempt at a fatty liver clinic in 2006, seven, we were learning as we went along and there was nice guidelines, the 532 from AAP, which we were using, right? Learning from the obesity side of the street and talking about all these different things that a child needs to do to live a better, healthy life. Unfortunately, they used to come back with no change. And plus, uh, as any person who has worked in an obesity-centered clinic will tell you, 50% children didn't come back anyways. It was too stigmatizing for them. So that's where the concept of let's find what's the best evidence, what's our biggest bang for our buck, and talk about one thing at a time. And I focused on a short jingle. I said, if it's sweet and you can pour, kick it out the door. Hmm. The kids, you smirked, right? Just, but, and that's what the kids did, right? They actually then would remember that. The whole purpose of that was, and I'm still working on a Spanish version. If anybody's good at Spanish, please can get me a better version of what we're doing right now. It doesn't translate well. Anyways, you wanted a plug? That's a plug. Um, <laughs> get me a Spanish version of that jingle. The children that lose weight and have their enzymes come down, it's a reward not to undergo more testing. So to answer Sydney's question directly, yes, I would not. I would say, great job. Let's continue this. Let's double down on this. Now let's go to more focus on your plate with less carbs and more protein. And then when you come back again, then we'll focus on portion control. So that one, two, three punch is a reward that we're going to keep working on this together because you're doing the right things. And then I'm going to discharge you from clinic the fourth time you come back. But if you're not, then we're going to go down the road of imaging. Then I'm going to talk to you maybe of our research studies. Then I'm going to maybe talk to you about liver biopsy. And so let's jump on that as a segue. When is a liver biopsy indicated? Is it absolutely needed? It seems like that's the gold standard, but is that necessary to make a confirmed diagnosis or what's the indication for a liver biopsy? So I think you you have to go through all the things we just talked about, which is we have done due diligence. We've tried our level best in giving diet and lifestyle uh, exercise recommendations. The assessment of the disease is important from a biopsy for the for the purposes of fibrosis, no fibrosis, because there is a known correlation of having significant fibrosis and poor outcomes all-cause mortality, hepatic disease, cardiac disease in the long run to individuals who, when biopsied, have significant fibrosis. So prognostication, that's what we know. Making a diagnosis, we're still dependent. You may have done all your autoimmune markers, but say your ANA is 1 to 60. 
it's kind of neither here nor there. It's not a 1 to 20 you'll ignore. It's not a 1 to 320 that you know is really positive. And the IgG is slightly elevated, borderline. How are you going to know that this is not a treatable condition that you're ignoring? It's going to be a liver biopsy, which will help you distinguish between those two entities, which are both sometimes coexistent. You can have a child who's overweight and have autoimmune hepatitis. So they will have both. And I wouldn't be able to diagnose AIH in that child who has borderline. uh, And I wouldn't put somebody on, say, steroids and azathioprine to treat AIH just on the basis of a 1 to 60 ANA. So there are positives of diagnosis, elimination of certain diagnoses, making the diagnosis of NASH and prognostication for the individual. Hey, look, you're 12 years old and you already have stage 2 to 3 fibrosis. I think we need to really pay attention to this. This puts you in the category. Think about it this way. If you're 12 and you already have stage 2, stage 3 fibrosis in your liver from exposure to the same milieu that others don't, that probably means that you are on that track. You're the genetically predisposed individual to get liver transplanted at 30 if you don't change your ways right now. And that child hasn't even started to think about what car they want when they're 18. (laughs) Forget about political party. (laughs) (laughs) So that liver biopsy, it sounds like the primary driver is ruling out co-occurring diagnoses and making sure that this is the the sole diagnosis. Is there other information about, uh, again, stratification of disease or anything like that? I think that's where uh, what I was leaning towards is that you have a diagnosis, but also the severity of disease, picking up the people, the individual children who are highest at risk, and then aligning our resources towards them. If I've done a biopsy and we find that there is increased steatosis, 30, 40% compared to normal being five or less, they may have a higher risk of diabetes and definitely continue diet and exercise. But I can reassure the family, the liver is, I put it this way, you have house guests, right? Some of them you like, some of them you don't. If you get along with them, the fat's there, the hepatocytes there, they're all happy. However, sometimes you don't get along with your house guest. And when you don't, there's bickering, there's stuff thrown around. That's when you have inflammation and scarring. And if you already know you're not getting along with your house guest, you need to kick them out. So we have to double down on that advice at that point. Uh, And then, of course, these are the individuals that as we advance in medicine will probably be, once we have, we have no FDA-approved therapies for children for NASH. Uh, Actually, in the U.S., we don't even have any for adults yet that are approved. So once there are approved therapies, those would be the children that I would say are worth the risk of side effects and stuff to start medicines on. This is great. And I feel like this is great advice, not just for uh, treatment of liver inflammation, but when you have a lot of guests in your house that uh, are, are bothering you. I think it's uh, just very universal. Great. Let's keep moving. So, Sydney, uh, let, what, what's uh, what's going on with Oliver a little bit later? Yeah. All right. So, you discussed the exam results with Oliver and his caregiver, and they are ready to jump into action to reduce his risk of future complications. And they want to know what they can do to cure his suspected fatty liver disease. So recognizing we have talked a little bit about this, what treatments, both lifestyle and medication, are recommended for the treatment of NAFLD in children? And if we're starting with lifestyle, um, is it just weight loss or cleaner eating? Well, uh, we've talked about uh, my approach, which is heavy on diet, pun not, I don't know, intended, not intended. But we definitely need to focus on diet more. Why? Because if you are going to focus on the exercise component of lifestyle, 
most of us have been on an exercise bike or a treadmill or whatever, and it takes about an hour for me at least to burn about 150, 200 calories. And that's one soda can, literally. So if it takes an hour to burn off a soda can, I'm going to focus on not taking the soda can to my mouth. Mm-hmm. Um, and and for, for children, probably also involving the family and making sure they understand that who in the family owns the grocery cart. And if the child is still 11 and 12, it's probably not them. And somebody else needs to buy into this phenomenon. And if I had talking about too many guests in the house, we have multi-generational fam- families, then I have to be peacemaker between the mother-in-law and the daughter-in-law and, and have them both in the clinic together before we can solve this puzzle. But jokes aside, I think diet and exercise are important. Diet is more important in this context. Exercise is great. Heart health, bone density, also shown to improve fatty liver disease. But I think the emphasis has to be on the right syllable. Medications, there is one large trial that was successful uh, in children called the TONIC study. Uh, This was a double-blind placebo-controlled trial comparing high dose, and I emphasize high dose, it's not a vitamin dose, high dose vitamin E, 400 units twice a day, it's the natural form, RR, alpha-tocopherol, compared to placebo or metformin. And only the group that was, and these were biopsy-proven children with NASH, that were provided this uh, randomized trial. Only the children that were in the vitamin E high-dose arm had improvements in ballooning degeneration, which is one of the uh, pathognomonic features of advanced NASH, uh, and therefore overall NASH scores improved. And that's where uh, we go in the clinic. If we have somebody with biopsy-proven NASH for two years, which was the duration of that study, we do use vitamin E at the dose I just described as a crutch, while we work on their lifestyle, while we focus on their diet, encourage them to be active, and we move on from there. Um, long term, I have to state this, there are significant population-based studies that have picked up on significant side effects of high-dose vitamin E at this level, including prostate cancer risk in men, cardiovascular events across the board for all sexes. So that's why after two years, we usually will stop vitamin E. And it seems like, at least in some of the adult literature, there's other medications that are being explored, things like GLP-1 agonists. Um, There's a study, I think, about with coffee suggesting that it might improve. And and even things like bariatric surgery, which we're starting to do for younger and younger kids, are there treatments or interventions in the pipeline that you see the future of NAFLD treatments starting to trend towards that might be worthwhile? So I don't want to pick any horses, um, especially as I said, I will not be talking about uh, non-FDA approved therapies, but there are stable full of horses in the barn. There are anti-fibrogenic agents in the pipeline that are attacking the severest form of liver decompensation. There are antioxidants in the pipeline. There are bile acid signaling mimetics, FXR agonists that manipulate how the body talks to itself from the enterocyte to the hepatocyte and controls the downstream control of cholesterol and its metabolites in bile acid production. And of course, as you mentioned, there are GLP-1 analogs as well, which have been validated to a large extent on the diabetes side, but now are making their way into weight loss. There was a large New England Journal paper that came out for adults recently. And Bariatric, not only open surgery, laparoscopic surgery, which has been around for quite a few years now, 
And uh, the TEEN labs, the Longitudinal Assessment of Bariatric Surgery Labs, TEEN, the adolescent group, it's a consortium funded by the National Institutes of Health. They've published uh, many papers on five-year outcomes on improvements in cholesterol and heart health with bariatric surgery in adolescents. So the feasibility and safety profile has been looked into for bariatric surgery in children slash adolescents, I would say more appropriately. However, the newest kid on the block is probably endobariatrics, where you are now doing, it was a, a very nice paper that came out in The Lancet just two weeks ago around comparison of vertical sleeve gastrectomy, which is the most popular bariatric weight loss surgery done in adults uh, across the world today, head-to-head with endoscopic sleeve gastrectomy using a device which kind of involutes the the stomach on the inside. Uh, So you're stitching it up from the inside, so to speak, making it smaller. So interestingly enough, you can imagine with the success of these procedures, as they get less and less invasive, the population that we care for on the pediatric side is going to become uh, more attracted towards these and practitioners are going to be more open to it. So not here yet, outside of uh, the Middle East, where there have been large cohorts of adolescents who've gotten endoscopic sleeve gastrectomies, not in the US yet, but it's coming, I would say. Uh, That sounds like there's a lot of exciting horses. And so those are pretty (laughs) cool. And we'll have to have you back in three to five years to do a complete update, it sounds like. I do want to add, you know, I feel like any 18-year-old who's listening to this episode is, you know, there's one question that they've been wanting us to address this whole time that they've been holding out for. Can they drink alcohol? What's the counseling on alcohol? If someone is a child and confirmed, or do you tell them that they should have lifelong abstinence? Or how do you approach alcohol and anything else that maybe um, these patients should avoid? So first of all, 18 is not legal in the US to drink. (laughs) (laughs) What? (laughs) Just to to put that out there. However, in terms of advice, and this comes from a person who has an 18 and a 19-year-old at home, well, in college, um, the advice would be, as you get to drinking age, wherever your jurisdiction allows. As you get to drinking age, if you have an underlying disorder that is labeled as it is, and we've talked briefly about nosology early on, as non-alcoholic, the reason behind that nosology is because it looks like alcoholic liver disease under the microscope. Back in the 1980s, in the Mayo Clinic, at the Mayo Clinic, pathologists were looking at slides, liver biopsy slides, and reading them out as ASH, alcoholic steatohepatitis, and sending them back to the ordering physician. And the ordering physician was sending the reports back and saying, no, this individual is a teetotaler. They don't drink. So what is happening is that when you take excess refined sugars, fructose, you metabolize it in the intestine, what goes back to the liver is actually alcohol intermediates. The damage is happening at the same through the same processes. So my point in sharing all of that, sorry, my battery is going to die, so I'm walking over. My <laughs> point in sharing all of this is that if you are your own best friend, please do not add fuel to the fire. Um, for whatever reason, I'm very emotionally invested in how much the patient can drink. And so is it something where really abstinence is a recommendation um, saying, you know, maybe a drink here or there? 
or no binge drinking, you know, no more than one a week, something like that. Is there is there a dose response to the damage that can be done? Yeah, I think it, this is a question probably better put to an adult hepatologist because they deal with the situation more than we do. From my standpoint as a pediatrician, it would be a hard no because you haven't fixed the first problem. I don't want to add a second problem. Fair. There Actually, there's a name for this. So we talked about ASH, alcoholic steatohepatitis, and we've obviously been talking about NASH, non-alcoholic steatohepatitis. When you have both together, we call it BASH. Both alcoholic. So I don't want you to get bashed. Ah, no I bash. Want, <laughs> I, I want like you to get bashed. <laughs> <Mash. Yeah. laughs> get a mix. Yeah. yeah. Uh, this is really helpful. That makes a lot of sense. And so for this patient, especially if they're young, let's say, you know, they're, they're doing a good job. They're, they're trying to do the best they can. They're avoiding alcohol. They're, you know, eating healthy. Uh, but the disease is, is tough. And when they're following with you and you start to see, no significant improvement or maybe even more elevations in uh, liver inflammation. Can you talk about what is the natural progression of the disease? Is it ultimately to liver failure? How often does that happen? When are you referring to liver transplant? What's the natural progression of disease? Well, I think uh, the, the quick answer is we don't know. There are ongoing large efforts, including the target trial, uh, to understand the natural history of disease. What we can say is that that you get hit hard early on, say if you have fibrosis at 12, that's a bad sign. And yes, the fastest growing population of young adults within the young adult cohort etiology, the fastest growing etiology for liver transplantation in young adults is fatty liver disease. Mm -hmm. Today, if you look at adults, not pediatrics, if you look at adults who receive liver transplantation in the U.S., Fatty liver disease has become the number two indication, and by 2030, there are predictions of it to be the number one indication for liver transplantation in adults. So this is, this is not a good story we are painting. It's sobering and important, I think, to hear that. Shifting gears just a little bit, one thing we really like to make sure we touch on in every conversation is about racial, ethnic, and other disparities that exist within um, the realm of the specific condition or disease that we're talking about. So we talked a little bit about the genetic components and certain populations that are at risk, but can you talk a little bit about maybe some disparities that exist in either identification or proper management? I think kind of alluded to that in terms of social determinants of health, where if you are living in a food desert, how are you going to not be, unfortunately, eating the worst kind of calorie-dense cheap foods if your only access is going to be a fast food restaurant to our school lunches? Uh, I, I can't pick on one school district in the country, but I think overall, they definitely have room for improvement. There's, there's, there's no pediatrician worth their salt who will not agree with us that I think we, we have work to do in our communities. And unfortunately, that's where it hits the hardest. People who are dependent on school lunches, people who do not have access to healthy options around where they live, or maybe it's not even safe for them to go out. I used to say, you know, go outside and walk your dog. And I didn't understand that maybe they can't because there's gunfire in the evening in their neighborhood. So part of what I have changed my spiel to focus on food and especially elimination of bad foods is because of that. It does not cost us anything to stop drinking sugar-sweetened beverages. My best example was when I started, I used to say, stop drinking soda, uh, stop drinking juices. And they would come back, not lost weight. And I said, did you listen to me? I said, yeah, I'm not drinking juice. I'm not drinking soda. What are you drinking? Sweet iced tea. 
<laughs> so that's where making it simple that anything sweet is verbatim, verboten, you cannot drink it. And they don't like it uh, initially, but then they get it that water and two glasses of white milk is all we need because they don't have a juice deficiency. Mom, um, can I, I water like it. it down? No, <laughs> you can't water it down. They don't have a deficiency of juice. <laughs> I love that phrase. I'm going to start using that. <laughs> yeah, no juice deficiency. Actually, I you know I think this has been really uh, helpful, and we've really gone from everything from uh, screening to diagnosis to to treatment and, and the future of treatment. As we approach time, are there specific take home things that you want our listeners to walk away with that you think is really important for pediatricians, whether they're in training or attendings and in practice? Uh, to know about fatty liver disease? I think I'll leave you with this thought, which has, is more recent to me myself, which is this is a public health emergency. This is not a GI or endocrine subspecialty or even a pediatric problem. This is a public health problem. And so we as people who are now informed or are getting better informed need to advocate. We may not be able to do that every day, but whenever there is an opportunity to step up and be counted, write to your congressman. These days, a lot of our organizations make it easy to send letters, click this, click that, and you'll be able to write to your own representative. Stand up and be counted so that the things we talked about, the social determinants of health, the roots of the problem that we talked about can be addressed as a community. Thank you so much for, for everything. You know, I think this is a, a, that's a great note to end on. It's a great framework to look at this issue. We appreciate your time, your expertise. We'd love to ask, is there anything that you have that you think our listeners should check out or anything you'd like to plug uh, and we can you know, send our listeners to, to check out? The one thing is not to check out, but to use. I was helpful and, and so was our institution in putting some resources into developing two very small one-minute videos in English and in Spanish. Uh, so if you Google fatty liver video or fatty liver CHLA video, uh, you'll get both of the videos up on YouTube, free to share, and use them in your clinics. Just while they're waiting, play them for a minute and encapsulate a lot of the stuff we talked about. That's great. Excellent. I, you know, those are great resources. Again, this has been wonderful. Um, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for your expertise. Thanks for coming on to the Cribsiders. Thank you for letting me stand by you. This has been another episode of the Cribsiders. It's for the kids. Get show notes and sign up for our weekly Knowledge Food Formula Feeds newsletter on our website at www.thecribsiders.com. We're committed to providing you with high-value practice changing knowledge, and to do that, we need your feedback. So please subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts, or contact us at thecribsiders at gmail.com. A special thanks to our producer for this episode, Sydney Angel, our showrunner, Sam Mazur, our wonderful social media team on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Thank you for joining us. I've been Justin Lee Burke. And I've been Sydney Angel. Thank you, and good night. Hey, you've already listened to the entire episode. Now claim CME credit. Continuing education credit is provided by VCU Healthcare Continuing Education. VCU is accredited to provide continuing education to the entire healthcare team. Check it out at cribsiders.vcuhealth.org for more information and to claim your credit after listening to this episode.